Good morning. Hope you all are doing well and had a good week. Uh, man, that, I like that song. I like it a lot. So, um, I like it a lot. It's a good one. Uh, hopefully, I got you ready for where we're going this morning. Uh, if you have your Bible with you, you can make your way to Joshua chapter 10. And uh, we're going to continue our working through Joshua. Like I said, we're kind of picking up the pace a little bit, and uh, we will uh, be wrapping up this series shortly before Thanksgiving. But um, today is Joshua chapter 10, and uh, the impacts of the chapters leading up to this uh, event in chapter 10, uh, which we'll unpack in a second. But uh, has anybody here ever done a uh, high ropes course or obstacle course before? You know where they make you climb things and they put you in that little vest diaper thing with a rope on it and then you go up. Um, I, I've been on a couple of those uh, different times and uh, I, I've enjoyed them and it's always one of those things if you've ever done one then you always know that when you're on the ground looking up something never looks as high as it actually is until you get up there. And so you know you've got all this courage while you're on the ground. You have faith in yourself and what you can do. And, and so you begin to take on this obstacle. The last one I was at, uh, we were uh, leading a youth camp at the time. And so I wanted to be the leader that I needed to be to take on one of the, the more challenging obstacles, which may not sound that challenging, but it was just this, uh, basically a telephone pole in the middle of this open area. And there were some spots you could grab a hold, but not like the old like hooks that you had on telephone poles, just spots you could grab a hold as you kind of bear hugged your way up this, this, this thing. And as you get to the top, the goal is to get to the top of the pole and to get yourself on the pole and stand on top of it. You ever seen these things? So you're going up and from the ground, you're like, you know, oh, that's, not, that's not that bad. I can't be that hard. I mean, it's, it's a pretty big pole. But as you get up there, you realize that your weight begins to, you can feel the pole moving and you can feel the wind a little bit more. And as you get to that position, you have this moment of, of faith you've got to take that, okay, do I, do I trust my own strength to be able to pull myself up on top of this and get my feet underneath? Because the goal is to stand up and then you're supposed to jump out because there's this bell hanging out there you're supposed to hit. And that's, that's the object. Do I have faith in myself to do this? And do I have faith in the guy that I just met maybe 10, 15 minutes ago that he can actually sustain my weight as I go out or fall? Because a lot of times, I don't know where Nick ran off to, but a lot of times it seems like the guys were about, there you are, Nick, about Nick's size. And I'm, I'm bigger than Nick, and I know how gravity works. And so I'm just picturing in my head when I'm doing these things that I'm plumbing in the ground, and this guy like Nick is going to just shoot up in the air with me. <laughs> And I'm just going to hit the ground and that's going to be it. I'm going to be done and be injured very badly. But that, that moment, that moment of faith and that moment of fear when they collide, that's where we're going to be dealing with this morning because I want to ask you what your motivators are. What motivates you to do what you do? What would motivate me to actually get up on that pole? Well, at that point in time, it was to make a point to all these students say, you know, I am big and I am strong and I am courageous and this is why I'm your leader. It was, it was to prove myself to someone else and sometimes that's our motivator. We want other people to see what we're doing. We want their applause, their approval. Sometimes our motivator is love. Either we want to express love to someone or we want someone to express love back to us. Sometimes it's power. Sometimes it's a position in life, recognition. 
just this sense of accomplishment. And if you look online, I promise you, because I did it this week, and you look up top motivators for people, all these things would be popping up in all these different websites. Some of them are just blogs. Some are psychological reports and things like that. And there are all these external rewards that give us intrinsic value in what motivates us to do the things that we do. You know, as school has begun and school sports have begun, a lot of our students and as parents, you probably realize we keep telling, well, just stay focused, keep motivated for the end goal. And that's what we're, we're wanting to get. We want the end goals to be what we see in our head. And so we need this motivation. But I believe in looking at the scriptures, it's not about love or power or accomplishment or the sense of, of feeling wanted or anything like that. I believe there are two motivators in all of our life, and they impact all those things. And if we fall to one over the other, it'll end in disaster. And those two motivators are this. What motivates you, what motivates me, what motivates every person on this planet is fear or faith. Fear or faith. We have a fear of what we can't figure out, what we can't see, how we, we can't understand what's going to happen. It doesn't work in our plan. We have a fear, and it may show up in different ways, in anger, in frustration, in tears. It may show up in us responding and turning to different things. Or we have a faith. And faith can be elaborated a little bit more because you can put faith in the wrong sort of things. But what we're going to be focused on is a faith in God and a faith in what He says. The passage this morning is a very interesting passage. If, if you're familiar with it, you've probably heard of it before. You maybe read it before. It deals with Joshua leading the Israelites in the midst of a battle where you're taking on five kings in the middle part of Canaan. And as Joshua arrives on the scene and the battle begins to unfold, Joshua lifts up this prayer, and we're going to read it here in a second, for God to make the sun stand still. And the Bible says that the Lord heeded man's request, and there was not a day like it ever since. And a lot of times when people read this particular passage in Joshua chapter 10, they focus on the prayer of Joshua, and they, they misinterpret it badly. Joshua chapter 10, we need to hear this, is not a chapter or a passage about prayer. It's not. Matter of fact, when you read later in Scripture, if Joshua 10 was a passage about prayer, then it would have made sense for Jesus to say, when you pray, pray like Joshua did, or pray like Jabez did. Or when you pray, you know, Paul would have mentioned this prayer in Joshua. It is not a passage about prayer, even though God answers the prayer and a miraculous event happens, and we'll look at it. It's a passage about motivation. It's a passage about what is motivating us and causing us to act the way we do. Is it fear or is it faith? And let's, let's read it and then you'll see how this is what it's really about. Beginning in verse 1, As soon as Adoni Zedek, king of Jerusalem, and I, I think I mispronounced it, I think it's Adoni Zedek, but you all didn't correct me. So anyway, as king of Jerusalem heard how Joshua had captured I, and devoted it to destruction, doing to I and his king as he had done to Jericho and its king, and how the inhabitants of Gibeon had made peace with Israel and among them. He feared greatly, 
Because Gibeon was a great city like one of the royal cities, and because it was greater than I, and all its men were warriors. And Adonai, Zedek, king of Jerusalem, sent to Hoham, king of Hebron, and Param, king of Jarmuth, to Japhia, king of Lachish, and to Debir, king of Eglon, saying, Come up to me, and help me, and let us strike Gibeon, for it has made peace with Joshua and the people of Israel. And then the five kings of the Amorites, and the king of Jerusalem, and the king of Hebron, and the king of Jarmuth, and the king of Lachish, and the king of Eglon, gathered their forces, and went up with all their armies, and encamped against Gibeon, and made war against it. Verse 6, And the men of Gibeon sent to Joshua at the camp in Gilgah, saying, Do not relax your hand from your servants. Come up to us quickly and save us and help us, for all the kings of the Amorites who dwell in the hill country are gathered against us. And Joshua went up from Gilgah, he and all the people of the war with him, and the mighty men of valor. And the Lord said to Joshua, Do not fear them, for I have given them into your hands. Not a man of them shall stand before you. So Joshua came upon them suddenly, having marched up all night from Gilgah, and the Lord threw them into a panic before Israel, who struck them with a great blow at Gibeon and chased them by the way of the ascent of Beth Horon, and struck them as far as Ezekah and Mechada. And as they fled before Israel, they were going down the ascent of Beth Horon, and the Lord threw down large, large stones from heaven on them as far as Ezekah, and they died. There were more who died because of the hailstones than the sons of Israel killed with the sword. Verse 12, At that time Joshua spoke to the Lord in the day when the Lord gave the Amorites over to the sons of Israel, and he said to, in the sight of Israel, Sun, stand still at Gibeon, and moon in the valley of Ajalon. And the sun stood still, and the moon stopped, until the nation took vengeance on their enemies. Is this not written in the book of Jashar? The sun stopped in the midst of heaven and did not hurry to set for about a whole day. There has been no day like it before or since, when the Lord heeded the voice of a man, for the Lord fought for Israel. So Joshua returned and all Israel with him to the camp at Gilgah. Let's pray together. Father, I thank you for this day. I thank you for your word. I thank you that we can praise you no matter what we're going through in our life at this moment. I thank you that you know each and every person here. You know the situations that they've been going through this week, whether it's brought pain or whether it's brought joy. And Father, we come before you in your presence. We surrender our hearts and our lives to you. We ask that you have your way with us. Let your spirit just invade our hearts and our minds, that you transform us by the power of your word, by the power of your spirit, by the power of your resurrected Son. Lord, that your will and your kingdom would come in each and every life. Father, I pray for those here this morning, Lord, that you know that they do not know you as their Lord and Savior. They are not your children. And Father, before we wrap up our time together, that they would come to that understanding, that your spirit would bring them to a place of conviction and repentance. And this would be the day of their salvation. Thank you for what you've been doing already. Have you been preparing our hearts? How you've been drawing us closer and deeper into your presence? Lord, open up your scriptures. Give us an understanding we have yet to have. Speak to us in truth and love. We surrender ourselves to you in this time. I pray it's on the name of Jesus. Amen. Let's do a little recap just to understand what's going on. Uh, Joshua chapter 6 deals with Jericho. Jericho fell. Chapter 7, you have the eye situation where someone stole the devoted things of Jericho and kept them themselves. The name was Achan, and that led to a defeat with I. And then finally, I meets defeat after Israel reconciles their relationship with God. Last week, we looked at chapter 9 and how the Gibeonites deceived Israel into making this treaty, this covenant with them. 
And this is what is taking place here in chapter 10, as the Gibeonites are now calling upon this treaty that they've made with Israel to come and help them as the kings have come and to attack them and invade them. As I mentioned, the question this morning is what motivates you? What motivates you to do what you do? And husbands, whether we like it or not, that's what our wives ask for the most of their lives, right? Why do you do what you do? My wife asks me all the time, why did you do that? What were you thinking? What motivates you to do what you do? I believe it's two things what Scripture points out here in chapter 10. You are driven and I am driven by faith or fear. That's what motivates us to take action and do the things we do in this life. We either fear something or we have faith in something bigger than ourselves. And sometimes what happens is we have a form of idolatry and that our fears get so big that we actually worship those as bigger than the God we serve and the God who is for us. And so we turn to our fears. This is what's going on here in chapter 10. It begins with this king, Adonai Zedek, king of Jerusalem, there verse 1. He hears of the news of Israel. He hears that they have ransacked Ai, they have taken Jericho down, and now the Gibeonites, who the passage tells us here that we didn't know in chapter 9, the Gibeonites was this royal city who had mighty men, mighty warriors. Now they have made this treaty, this covenant with Israel, and the response of the king of Jerusalem in verse 2 is that he greatly feared. And the reason that jumps out to us is because what is the very first thing that the Lord says to Joshua in verse 8? Do not fear. And so you've got this battle of fear. Am I going to succumb to the fear? Now, why would Joshua have to be afraid? Well, there's a couple things that be going on. One, Joshua had to fully be aware of what happened with I. At I, the Lord told the Israelites not to take anything that was to be devoted to destruction from Jericho. But they did that. And then they met destruction themselves. And, and they had to reconcile their relationship with God. And until that happened, they couldn't move forward. But now with the Gibeonites in chapter 9, Joshua has made this treaty with the people of the land to which God specifically said in the book of Numbers, do not line yourselves up with the people of this land because they will bring sin upon the camp. And so now Joshua's wrestling with this. Okay, we disobey God once and bad things happen. I know I didn't do what God wanted me to do before, so are bad things going to happen again? And yet he marches out to Gibeon because he made a promise. He made a vow to them. So he's dealing with that. But then we also got to put the number situation in, into account. There are five kings with five armies encamped around Gibeon, and there's one Joshua and one army of Israel that is coming to meet them. The odds are not in their favor. It's five against one. We don't know how many people the five kings had. We know the Israelite army is fairly large, but still, these are trained people that are on their home turf, their home territory. And so I imagine Joshua, because God doesn't come to us and tell us something just because he feels like he needs to talk to us. He always has a purpose when he says something through his word. So when God comes to Joshua and says, do not fear, he's giving him a very specific message that Joshua is wrestling with this fear in his heart, just like the king of Jerusalem has greatly feared the people of Israel and Gibeon. And I imagine what Joshua is wrestling with in his fear is the same thing we wrestle with. Are our mistakes bigger than the miraculous power of God? Do the mistakes we make in life counter God's power and His ability to produce God's power? 
And we may not think we wrestle with this, but I guarantee you do. Because we think, well, I can't do something because of... You can fill in the blank. Well, if you only knew my past, you wouldn't ask me to... Whatever. And so we begin to limit God's miraculous power because of our mistakes in the past. But if you look through Scripture... The message of Scripture is God, time and time again, takes the mistakes that we have made, the sins that we've had in our past, and He wants to use them that His power may be manifested to this world. Look in Genesis. Genesis, Joseph, he had some brothers that didn't care for him too much. His daddy gave him a color, colorful coat. And as his brothers saw Joseph coming to them, they decided, hey, let's kill him. But instead they threw him in a hole and they sold him to slavery and then lied to their daddy about it. They made a mistake. They sinned. But what did God do with that situation? God took the mistakes of the brothers and he used Joseph to save what would become the nation of Israel. You jump to the New Testament. In John chapter 4, Jesus is in Samaria, which is a place Jews do not go. He encounters a woman at the well and they have this strange conversation about worship and about what the Jews believe and what they believe. And Jesus reveals to her that he knows everything about her, that she has had several husbands and she's living with a man who's not her husband at the current time. And she has this epiphany, wow, I can see you're a prophet. But Jesus speaks to her truth. He speaks to her words of faith over her fears and what's keeping her from God. She goes back to her town, and we read later in John chapter 4, that that town in Samaria comes to salvation because she allowed her mistakes to be used for the miraculous power of God. Peter made a lot of mistakes in Scripture. None so big as denying Christ and looking Him in the eyes when He did it. And yet God uses Peter's mistakes not only to become the leader of the church in the book of Acts, but to write letters that deal with how to be a suffering servant for Jesus Christ in the kingdom of God. Paul, you can't read the book of Acts and you can't read some of Paul's letters without coming up with some of the mistakes he made in life. He persecuted the church. He ravaged the church. He set to destroy the church. And yet God used Paul and his mistakes to be able to reach out to a Gentile world so they might come to know Jesus Christ, their Lord and Savior. It does not matter the mistakes that you've had in life. Do not let your fear of your past keep you in your past. God calls us to step out on faith through a reconciled relationship so that we might be motivated by that and who He is and who He is over our life. Joshua's wrestling with fear. Did I make a mistake that is too big for God's power? The Lord comes to Joshua and says, Fear not. I am with you. I have given them to you. Verse 8. Our mistakes can either capture us and define us in this fear that we believe God can't use us, or our mistakes can be turned over to God in faith, allowing God to miraculously use them however He sees fit. And that may mean that some of our faith requires us to be a little more vulnerable, to be willing to share about the mistakes we've made so other people don't have to walk down that path. I've made tons of mistakes in life. If you want to hear about them, I'll tell you about them. You can go listen to the podcast. I talk about them almost all the time. But God uses our mistakes for His power. In our weakness, what? He's strong. 
So Joshua's wrestling with this, and God comes to him and gives him words of reassurance. But also, this is a, a, a thing over and over again in Scripture where God has to reiterate His promise, His provision, His presence, and His power to Joshua. This isn't the first time nor the last time that the Lord has to tell Joshua, do not fear. Because He knows that we wrestle with fear. And it's going to be our fear of faith that causes us to act out. So Joshua's in this. But then let's go back to the king of Jerusalem. Scripture blatantly says he feared greatly, meaning he was overwhelmed with what just happened in his land. He was overwhelmed with Israel now in the land. He was overwhelmed with what they did with Jericho and I. He was overwhelmed with this idea that Gibeon had now made a truce or a treaty with Israel. And he was greatly Feared. He was greatly disturbed. And in that fear, he does what we all do. He acted out of it. But who did he turn his attention to? Was it Israel? What city did they go to? They went to Gibeon. They circled Gibeon. He, he got all of the other kings, these four of the kings, to come with him. They circled around Gibeon. And when our fear is what drives our actions, when it is the motivator to what we do, what we do, it will always be misdirected. When you fear what you cannot control, when you fear what you cannot know, when you cannot place in your head and figure out, it will always misdirect your action because you will respond out of that fear. Instead of relying upon the Word of God and faith in God's promises. Gibeon became the point of the action in this passage. But the problem wasn't Gibeon. The problem was really with Israel. But when we act out of, out of fear, we're going to misdirect our attention. And how many of us have done this in our own life? How many of y'all have come home from a bad day, a frustrating day at work, or a frustrating day with people, and instead of lashing out at them, you lash out at the people closest to you? That's what we do. Fear causes us to be angry. It causes us to fall into sin. It causes us to fall into temptation. And it pulls us away from where God wants us to be. When we allow fears to direct our actions, we will become blind and seen what is really going on, and we will act out irrationally. The Lord comes to Joshua and says, don't do what he did. Do not fear. And what the Lord is doing to Joshua in this moment is telling Joshua, instead of turning to the fear in your heart, turn to faith. Turn to the faith in who I am. Turn to the faith into my promises that I've spoken over you, my word. Turn the faith that I am with you. The Bible says in Hebrews 11:1, 1, faith is the assurance of things hoped for and the convictions of things not seen. The Bible tells us in 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 7, that God has not given us a spirit of fear. Can you imagine what the Gibeonites are thinking in this moment? They just made this treaty with their new allegiance buddies. I imagine there's fear in, in the city of Gibeon. Is Israel going to be true to their word even though they know that we duped them and we lied to them? Are they going to rally? 
fear of whether or not God's people are going to stand by what they say. But you see that Joshua in chapter 10, he went up from Gilgal in verse 7, and he and all the people who were with him, all the mighty men of valor. And the Bible says that they did it throughout the night. They marched through the night. They were going to be true to their word. So when we're battling fear and faith, when we're dealing with what's going to motivate us and how we're going to act out, what we're going to say, how we're going to treat people, how we're going to respond to situations, how we're going to handle our family and our money and our household, fear or faith, where does it begin? Well, for Joshua, it had to begin with the object of his faith, which was in the sovereignty of God. You notice what, jo- what the Lord did when Joshua stuck to the promise that he gave the Gibeonites, and they marched out. Did you see what God did? It had nothing to do with Joshua and his people. Verse 10, God threw them, the five armies, into a panic, simply by Israel showing up, simply by God's people showing up. God threw them into a panic. Verse 11, the Lord threw down large hailstones from heaven on them. On, from heaven on them. And though Joshua may have prayed the prayer, I guarantee you Joshua did not have the power to stop the sun. God had to do that. In the midst of this situation, God had to stop the sun. So Joshua turned to the only source, the only power that he truly could turn to, and that was God to do what only God could do. The object of our faith is the sovereignty of God and that we are God's people. We belong to him. The promise of his word, he will never leave us or forsake us. The sovereignty of God is to speak of God's absolute right to do all things according to his pleasure or will. And so Joshua acted on the sovereignty of God. Joshua acted on the word of God. Joshua put his faith in the power of prayer. And then God acted. And in verse 14, it sums up this battle. For the Lord fought for Israel. That was the object of their faith. Our conviction has to be that we serve the God of the impossible, the God who fights for his people, and the God who blesses his people when they act in obedience instead of fear. The object of our faith is God, who's bigger than any fear we can have. And we have to deal with this situation because it's an odd situation. Verse 12, at that time Joshua spoke to the Lord in that day, and the Lord gave the Amorites over to the sons of Israel. And he said in the sight of Israel, Sun, stand still at Gibeon, and the moon in the valley of Ajalon. And the sun stood still, and the moon stopped until the nation took vengeance on their enemies. Is it not written in the book of Jashar? And the book of Jashar is, is a book we do not have. It's some sort of recording that they had in Israel. We don't have it today. And the sun stopped in the midst of heaven and did not hurry to set about for a whole day. And there has been no day like it before or since when the Lord heeded the voice of man. And some translation says the Lord obeyed the voice of man. That would be a misinterpretation of that Hebrew word. God does not obey man. Okay? Um, he did, he, he listened, he heard, he responded to the voice of man for the Lord fought for Israel. And so Joshua turned and all Israel with him to camp. Go, what in the world happened? And there's, there's this, this thing out there that astronauts and scientists and physicists have tried to figure out the astronomical age of the earth. And when they tried to put it all together, they were missing like 20 three hours and so many minutes or whatever, and, and then someone pointed back to this, and that actually can't be proven. That's kind of one of those uh, strange little stories that are out there. 
Um, someone, I don't know if they made it up or someone actually heard it, but there's no proof of that story actually happening. Um, what's going on in this situation? Well, there's multiple interpretations. There's the literal interpretation. Joshua prayed, the Lord heard, and the sun stopped, which means one or two, the earth just stopped rotating, or the sun just stood still in the sky or stayed with the earth's rotation for a period of time. That's the literal interpretation. The other interpretation is that when Joshua said, sun stand still, is that what happened is that the sun's light just got brighter for a longer period of time, and it just illuminated a longer period of the day. Then there's the interpretation, well, it's some sort of eclipse, because sun stands still, that word still means stop or be at peace. And so Joshua wasn't praying for the sun to stop in the sky. He was instead praying for it not to be so hot while they fought. And so he's just, he's praying for like a darkness. But that doesn't go with the rest of Scripture in that interpretation, because verse 13 clearly says, The sun stopped in the midst of heaven and did not hurry to set about for a whole day. Then there's the other interpretation that it is a, a, a poetic wording, that it's not actually a, a, a literal thing that happened. It's just a poetic way of describing the battle. But again, that doesn't go with what we read in the rest of Scripture. And they get that because of verse 12 and 13 are more poetic like the book of Psalms. What we can know, according to Scripture, is that the sun stopped. And there had been no day, verse 14, like it before or since. When the Lord heeded the voice of man, the Lord fought for Israel. This event is not a miraculous sign demonstrating Joshua's prayer life or even Joshua's righteousness. This event in chapter 10 itself is demonstrating the sovereignty of God over all creation and Joshua's faith in God's sovereignty. That's the, that's the lesson. That Joshua in this moment is finally getting it. I serve a very big God who can do anything, and that's what I'm placing my faith in. I'm not placing my faith in a military strategy. I'm not placing my faith in my massive army. I'm not placing my faith in my own abilities. I'm placing my faith in the God who can do all things and my faith in the word that God has spoken over me, which was what? I am with you and I am giving them to you. So Joshua's faith was in God and God's word. And that's where our faith has to be. And that's where we're going to be battling every single day of our life is am I going to trust God and am I going to trust His Word or am I going to succumb to the fears that are all around me in this world? And because Joshua trusted God and had faith in God and Joshua had faith in God's Word, it is then that Joshua turned to the faith of prayer because he knew God would hear him because he understood who God was. The power of Joshua's prayer is founded on the power of God's already spoken word. This was not, see this is a misinterpretation right here that people have of this. This is not a prayer in scripture for us to take and say, look what Joshua did so I can pray to win the lottery. Now if you pray and win the lottery, you better tithe on the, the winnings before taxes, okay? This is not a prayer, guys and gals, students, for that boy or girl to like you that obviously has nothing in common with you and wants nothing to do with you. This is not one of those prayers you shoot up like a, a Joshua standstill type of prayer. Even though books, there are books just on this prayer. 
But again, Jesus never said pray like Joshua. Jesus never said pray like Jabez or pray like someone else. Jesus said, when you pray, what? Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Jesus' prayer was focused on the sovereignty of God and having faith in that and the sovereignty of God's word, what God has been revealing up to that moment. And then in our faith, we pray the word of God. If you want miraculous prayer life, here's the key. Pray the word of God. Pray the word of God, which means, as we talked about a couple weeks ago, we've got to know the word of God. But if you want the power of God in your prayer, then pray the word of God to God. There is power in this word. Ian Bounds wrote, The word of God is the fulcrum upon which the lever of prayer is placed, and by which things are mightily moved. I thought that sounded really cool, but I had to look at it and see what in the world he was talking about. Fulcrum, lever, what? What he's saying is our prayer life must begin and end with the Word of God. Do we get blessed by answered prayer? Absolutely. Joshua and Israel got blessed by that. It was something that if you read on in Scripture, they talk about what God did in this moment. But it wasn't for Joshua's glory. It wasn't for Israel's glory. It was for his glory. And that's what the object of our faith has to be and the object of our prayer has to be. It's not about me. It's about you and your sovereignty and your word and your promises and your provision and your presence. Or as Jesus said, your will and your kingdom coming. That's the power. And that's the battle we live in right now. Joshua's prayer was founded on what he believed, which was founded that God would be faithful. And that's our fear. Will God be faithful or is God faithful? That's the battle throughout all Scripture. What are we going to place our faith in, our fears or our God? The final piece of this passage begins in verse 16 through 28, and you can read it later if you'd like. But what happens is the five kings who once came out so boldly but in great fear, they end up running after God sends the hailstorms and sends them into a panic when they see Israel. And they end up running and then the armies scatter and then Joshua sends out that prayer to, to destroy the armies. Well, the kings go and hide in a cave. And the Israelites find out about him, so they, they put a rock in front of the cave and like, we'll get back to you in a moment. <laughs> and then they go and finish the battle. Well, as they come back at the end of chapter 10, they come back and they bring the five kings out. And there's this very strange thing where they stick their foot on their necks and the Lord again speaks to Joshua, do not fear. Sticking on the, the foot on the neck was a sign of surrender and submission. Um, it may seem like barbaric in our day, but it's a different day. You've got to keep that in mind. And so they kill the kings and they hang them on a tree. And once they finally die, they throw them back in the cave and they put a rock in front of it. And it's kind of a strange ending to the story because you got this event and then it just kind of, you know, if this was a movie, it'd be kind of like, eh, that didn't really end very well. I mean, the middle part was better. But there's a huge significance for us in this, in that he hung these five kings on a tree. And what the significance of that in Scripture is when someone is hung on a tree, it means they are cursed by God. And so Joshua is simply stating not only to Israel, but 
to these kings, they've been cursed by God because they've chosen not to place their faith in God. They place their faith in their kings, in their armies, but they're missing the main factor. They didn't have God for them. The interesting thing is God plays this story out later, thousands of years from Joshua, and that he sends the king of kings to this earth to be hung on a tree. And just think about this for a second. Joshua was not perfect, but Jesus, Yeshua, was completely perfect. Did everything according to what God said to do. Lived out God's word to the fulfillment. Never had fear. And yet the whole purpose of Jesus' coming was that he might die on a tree. Which is a statement from heaven that God was sending our curse of sin fully upon his son. And he made it on display for all to see. You may be here this morning and there's the fear of the unknown. What happens after life? When this life is over, because that's the truth we all have, someday our life will be done. When this life is over, what's next? The Bible tells us that God created you for a relationship with him. But that relationship is tainted because you have sin in your life. You have mistakes. You have things you're not proud of. And for some people here, those mistakes may be the one thing that's keeping you from coming to a relationship with God. But Joshua got that cool lesson that God works through our mistakes. And so your mistakes don't hinder the power of God and God's love for you. That's why Jesus Christ came to this earth to die on a cross, to be placed in a tomb, but he came out of that tomb unlike the five kings. The Bible says when we place our faith in Jesus Christ and him alone for our salvation, alone, not by anything we bring to the table, but everything that he has done for us, we will be saved. And we come to this time of invitation, and we call it an invitation because I'm inviting you to come and confess this publicly. The Bible says we have to believe in our heart that we have to confess with our mouth. You may be here this morning, it's exactly what you need to do. You need to confess that you are a sinner, that Jesus Christ died for your sin, but he rose again, and that you need forgiveness. So I'm going to invite you to come down and just to say, Hey, Pastor Mike, I want to be saved. I want to be forgiven for my sins. I want the promise of eternal life in heaven. Maybe you're here and you've already accepted that. But you're battling with something right now. And so this message hopefully kind of hit home for you. What are you turning to? Are you turning to what you can't control and what you can't understand? Are you turning to the fear? Are you turning to the sovereign God and the power of His Word and placing your faith in that? He is good. All the time. And all the time? Now's the time to come. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for this day. Thank you for your Word. Thank you for... Father, the promises that we tend to forget, I tend to forget. Promises you've given us in your word over and over again. The promise of your presence and your promise of your power. How you continue to provide for us, Lord. Lord, forgive me when I don't see it. When I become blinded by my fears of what I, I, I can't figure out. Forgive my brothers and sisters in Christ here this morning who are wrestling with that and trying to figure things out and, and just becoming anxious and worry about those things. You are holy, holy, holy. You created all things. You own all things. 
Father, help us to trust in that. Knowing that you are good and you are faithful. So we come to this moment in time, Lord, where we want to lay down these worries and these concerns, these fears at your feet and turn to you. We want our own sun standing still moment where you stop all this and help our hearts just to focus on you in that moment in the midst of the battle. I pray for those here this morning who don't know he's your Lord and Savior. Father, they may not even know it. In this moment in time, I ask your spirit to speak to their heart in such a way that their eyes become open and they see the truth that they need you. They need a relationship with you. They need forgiveness. I pray for your church, this church, that we would be a church of faith, that we would live out our faith so this community doesn't brag about Harvest Field, but they brag about how awesome you are. Forgive me if I failed you or got in your way at any point in time this morning. Thank you for this day. Praise all in the name of Jesus. Amen. I invite you to stand. I invite you to stand.